Namaste. I am Shefali Vaitya and I have with me a very special guest today, Dr. Meenakshi Jain. Her name really needs no introduction, but I'll still introduce her. Meenakshi ji is a renowned historian, scholar, a professor at Delhi University and an author of a huge body of books that have covered a vast variety of topics. And the good news is Meenakshi ji has been conferred Padma Shri this year. And uh, what can be a happier occasion than for me than to have a conversation with Dr. Meenakshi Jain on the topics that uh, she is an authority on. I will just tell you the names of some of her books. She has written, I think it's co-authored with Sandhya ji. No, these uh, are mine okay. and hers is separate. No, the India this one, yes. was it a co... No, mine is separate, three volumes. She okay. has written one okay. separately. Okay. So she has written the India they saw, which is a reflection based on the travelers' accounts of India, uh, starting from 8th century to 19th century. Yes. Right? yes. Then she has written two books on Ayodhya, The Battle for Rama, Case of the Temple at Ayodhya, and Rama in Ayodhya. She has written the one of the most scholarly works on the topic that exists in India on Sati. It's called Evangelicals, Baptists, Missionaries, and the Changing Colonial Discourse. And her latest book, which is a very interesting and detailed documentation of the Hindu resistance and the temple destruction that happened in North India and South India. And how the deities were taken away by the people and protected. It's called the flight of deities. Meenakshi ji, I am very, very happy to be talking to you. It's been actually a dream come true. So thank you so much for giving me this chance to have a conversation. I have to thank you because you have such a vast following. I can never hope to have so many readers. So I feel that through you, more people will become aware of my work and that's a very big gain for me. You have no idea how popular no. you are because yesterday I just asked for crowdsourcing. I said I'm going to record this interview with Dr. Meenakshi Jain and if you have any questions, just write them to me. And within two hours, I got more than 50 questions. So you have no idea about your own popularity. But it's a real... Because uh, you're not on social media. Yes, yes. But you are phenomenally popular. Your books are read and received and a lot of people have questions which I will ask at yes. the end of the Thank day. Thank you so much. Uh, but let me start with, uh, with, with the book that personally interests me a lot because I like traveling. It is uh, the monumental work in three volumes called The India They Saw, which yes. is based on the foreign travelers' accounts, how they came to India and what it is that, that impressed them about India and what did they write about it. And you have covered a huge span from 8th century to, to 19th century, right? Uh, so... My first question to you is what is the one theme that is common to all these accounts? Why did they feel like they should come to India? What was India's appeal yes. to them? Uh, can I just begin by telling you why I undertook this work? Actually, this was not my idea. Mm -hmm. uh, Vidya Naipaul, Sir Vidya Naipaul had gone to Southeast Asia. Okay. And when he came back from there, he called a meeting of a group of us and he said, you know, I'm absolutely amazed at the extent of Indian influence in that region even today, hmm. though there has been a convert, you know, change of faith, etc. And he says, you know, Indians have forgotten how the world viewed them. So he said, you know, I cannot undertake this uh, project, hmm. but if some of you can collect as many accounts as you can of people who came to India and what they wrote about India, what they felt about India, 
that will be you know very important for the Hindus to understand how they were viewed in the past. Mm -hmm. So uh, I did three volumes that is from the 8th to the 19th century as you said and what is absolutely the common thread between all these. You know there was a unanimity mm. among all these travellers who came from various parts of India from China, mm -hmm. some from Japan, one from Korea okay. and then in the middle ages the early travellers were from Arabs, they were Arabs, then of course we had so many and Europeans then also. Europeans also. So they were unanimous that they were coming to India because it had a unique place in the world. It was a land of wisdom mm -hmm. and the Arabs had the term Hikmah and they wrote that Hikmah came from India. Okay. And so what and is hikmah? hikmah is wisdom. Okay. So they said wisdom came from India. Wow. So India in all these accounts is a revered place because it is the source of wisdom. And apart from that, they were all aware that India had a great economic uh, window to offer to the world. So they said, you know, the kind of rare commodities. Mm -hmm. And I'll just give you one instance of this which will interest your viewers. The first account that we have of a foreigner coming to India is in the ancient period. Okay. And this is an ambassador who comes to the court of one of the Indian kings. And he says that my king wants you to send peacock feathers, ivory and Indian philosophers. Wow. So the Indian king says that, you know, we will, I will gladly send you peacock feathers and ivory, but our philosophers are not for sale. <laughs> so this image that India was able to create so early on in its history, and uh, if I can just give you another example. Where, uh, who was that, this first uh, traveller from, from which country? Okay. And the next is Alexander. Okay. You know, Alexander invaded India. We are all aware of it. And we know about his fight with Porus, yes. etc. So, Alexander, he hears of these philosophers. And he wants to meet some of them. And he sends a couple of his men that there are some philosophers living nearby please ask them to come and see me and when his generals go to the Indian philosophers they are called gymnosophists naked ascetics okay. and they say we will not we are not interested in meeting Alexander okay. so Alexander himself goes to meet them and the first question they ask him why have you undertaken such a long journey you know so <laughs> So these are early accounts that we have which tell us of the unique place. I cannot think of any other civilization which had this reputation and this aura about it so early in its history. I am not saying that India was the only ancient civilization but all other ancient civilizations they petered away, they faded away at some point right. and we are the proud inheritors of a civilization which has continued unbroken through all the ups and downs in our history. And I think that is something that we should really cherish.
So you are saying that when the ancient travelers from across the world came to India, they were essentially coming in search of Bharat. And by Bharat, I mean the meaning of the word because Bharat comes from the root bha, which means to spread light. So Bharat itself means the giver of the light of wisdom. So that is what they were seeking, the light of wisdom. That's that's why they, they came. Were looking for hikma wisdom. Yes. And they were also uh, motivated by the great stories they had heard of you know, very precious commodities and rare commodities. So they came for two things. Wisdom and for wealth. So that is another recurring theme, yeah. right? That yeah. India was prosperous and yes. everybody says that yes. it's a Soneki Chidya, it's a land of milk and honey. That's why we are coming to that. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and and there was, I mean, it, it was, they were not talking about specific regions. They were talking about this whole cultural entity, Absolutely. this Absolutely. one cultural entity. Absolutely. So, how come that we have been fed this lie, consistent lie, which some people are still parroting today, that there was no India before the British? Actually, who's parroting it? It is a group of historians. Uh, but what we forget is that these established historians, they're only echoing an argument that was first advanced by British in the colonial period. So when we talk of our modern historians of the post-independence period and we hold them you know, as mirroring that in, there was no such thing as India, actually they are echoing a view that was first advanced in the British period by colonial scholars and administrators. Whereas if you look at the Indian texts and you look at the Indian reality, you go as far back in time as you want to. Arthashastra, Kautilya, in that he says that India from the Himalayas to the seas should have one ruler. And every ruler says that I am Chakrabartin. That means he aspires to establish his hold over the whole country, over the whole subcontinent. The problem was that given the means of communication and that period, it was not physically possible perhaps for one ruler to establish political control over the whole subcontinent. But the ideal always was one, one. king, Chakravartin, as Kautilya says, from Himalayas to the seas, India should have one ruler. And apart from this political unification, what was it that kept us united? It was a shared culture, a shared spiritual tradition, a shared mythology, a shared epics, Purans, everything. So if you look at architecture from the north to the south, you will find that all the temples, they depict scenes from this common corpus. So if I am from the north and I am going to see the Pallav temples at Mahabalipuram, I will be able to at least at once identify, okay, this is Arjun's penance, this is Draupadi's Rath. So it was that more than the political ideal of one ruler, it was the so shared cultural, cultural unity. unity which we should emphasize. Uh, what about the other canard that's always thrown at people that uh, 
the the position of women was always secondary and was always terrible in india they were oppressed but in your book you have given how the visitors who come to india they are impressed by how uh, strong the women of india are and how much of uh, decision making they do in their everyday life so you talked about some uh, visitor who goes to kerala could you could you narrate a little more I about i just want it? to say one or two things yeah uh, first of all they all emphasize the importance of the institution of marriage mm-hmm. and they say that there is such strong commitment to this institution institution on the part of the wife and the husband that it is something that they are really amazed by and really impressed by mm-hmm. and uh, there is this and they're talking about the high status of women uh, for example there is this italian nobleman petra della vella mm-hmm. he comes to india in the medieval period in the 16th century okay. he comes from italy okay. and he comes via iran so before he comes to india he stops at iran and over there he interviews the shah of iran and he's recorded that okay. and then he comes to the south because from there he takes the sea route and he comes to the south and there he finds the matrilineal system and women in positions of power and there's one very interesting incident that he writes about uh, he comes to a group of villages and he wants to meet the person who's in charge of those villages or who's the you know ruler or leader and he's told that she's a woman he goes to her house but she's not in the house and the family members tell him that she's in the field supervising the construction of a ditch because monsoons are going to start okay. so he is really you know this is a dimension of a ruler that he is not familiar with okay. so he says i must go to the you know field and see how this lady is supervising and he writes that when i was going towards the fields i saw her coming okay towards where we were and the first impression is one of total shock because she is dressed as ordinarily as the workers as the workers yeah. and uh, you know no slippers and she's walking barefoot and she's hands on on the job and then he says that you know i start discussing you know they would have a a person who would interpret so then he says i started talking to her and i was struck that she sounded as philosophical as the shah of iran whom i had interviewed some months ago so he says this was a new experience for me that a woman hands on on the job dressed as her average subjects or the people who are working for her but in tune with the fundamentals of this culture and civilization so they what they write about that the ideas that sustain this culture and civilization they had percolated to a lower strata of society it's not that the ideas were limited to the top layer everyone was familiar with the philosophy the underlying themes of this civilization which was what was very startling 
that's another thing i mean uh, we um, in 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 16th century uh, as well another epoch making event happened that is the coronation of shivaji maharaj right yes. and that time a uh, lot of british uh, dutch as well as i think one italian also who were invited as a guest coming uh, to the egalitarianism and coming to everybody from top to down being clued into the civilizational ethos of this land uh in the 16th century another very epoch making event happened that is was the coronation of shivaji maharaj and we all know that for that event he had called uh, the the british people from surat as well as some dutch some italians and they have all recorded what their impression was of the ceremony as well as of raigad and of the people could you talk a little more about yeah that? this is a very interesting episode that happens in indian history uh you know there were some traders who had come to surat and they wanted certain concessions and they were told that you know you have to get the clearance from shivaji maharaj because he is the powerful person in this area and by some chance they actually meet shivaji and they say that you know we wanted to discuss so shivaji tells them that my coronation is going to take place in raigarh a few weeks from now and i invite you to come and witness that and these people were very thrilled that they're getting an invitation to go and attend the coronation of such a powerful ruler and uh, they after some weeks they actually land up at raigarh and the account that they have written is something that should be read by everyone interested in our heritage because you know it shows our rulers in a very very flattering light hmm. so these people say that they reached raigarh as honored guests of shivaji and they are you know served and they say that the same food is served to shivaji as to everyone including us and he said we never never heard of this food before and what is this food so they write the spelling in with great care so that everyone okay. and that food that is served to everyone is something called khichdi okay and you know so they say that you know Uh, this khichdi is served at all meals and after two days they said we felt seriously ill because we were not used to this diet and then shivaji asks why have we fallen ill so we said you know we are not used to this diet and we must have our chicken and eggs etc so then shivaji says all right so he sends people and they travel through many villages till they find a butcher okay and they say now you come to raigarh and till the guests are here you have to give them eggs and chicken every day okay. and they write that after a stay of 2 months or whenever we left that butcher came and said all the blessings that god can give you i pray for you because 10 generations of mine will be able to live <laughs> through the earnings that i have made in these 2 months so these are you know uh views of our past which are normally forgotten because we don't read them about sure. them in our textbooks there is no way that we can learn about it unless we take the effort and one more thing if i can tell you yeah, uh you know at that time there were no the transportation was not easily mm-hmm. available so if a foreigner came and had to go from one province to another all his luggage had to be cut carried by coolies yeah porters so uh, when they had to go from one place to another they would hire these coolies and they would fix uh, daily wages in advance 
it would be a pittance like you know one piece of something per day and they had to carry so many bags so this person writes that i engaged this this set of coolies eight or 10 and i said for three weeks it will take me to reach there and i'll give you this much money every day and he says that you know it was so extraordinary i have never seen this kind of commitment and devotion to the family the coolie would try to make sure that he spent none of that money during the duration of that trip and he would try to save every penny of it to take back to his home when he left so he said you know this kind of uh, frugal living and that you know we whatever we can do for our family we must do so he says they would carry dry rice with them and tobacco because tobacco would reduce the fatigue factor okay and rice and some 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 dry fruit which would serve them for the 3 weeks okay and one more thing that they said this was the sense of community in every village at the village entry point you know boiled rice water would be kept for people who are coming and would be offered to them free of cost okay. because that rice water has a lot of properties it's very nutritious very nutritious so you know this kind of care not only for your family but the community caring for you so this is these are the kind of uh, qualities that kept this society together even when we did not have political power for such long periods why did our society not collapse because there were certain inherent features certain inherent qualities that had percolated to the lowest level and this this concept of the whole village taking yes. care of the guests yes. is it continues even today yes. because when we have the pavari that's the pilgrimage annual pilgrimage that people undertake from alandi to pandarpur there are villages along the way who basically just take care they pool in money and they take care of they make food every house will contribute something and they'll feed those thousands and thousands of pilgrims and they've been doing it year after year after year generations after generations without expecting anything in return it's the same continuation of what you told and me iravati karbi yeah. she undertook yes vatsal is the is the title of that essay and she said it came as a real education that this strong sense of community yes i could not have visualized sitting in my desk in my university i have done that i have walked for a day just yes. for a day and i have seen that myself even now in like 2018 or 2017 this sense of community yes. the sense of seva the and sense of service is 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 yes. still strong yes uh let me let me look at this uh, perception of india or perception of bharat we have talked about how foreign travelers perceived india now let's turn the view around on its head how did we perceive ourselves how did bharat perceive bharat how did india perceive herself could you talk a little yeah, bit about it's a very very interesting question and my answer is very simple india kept its doors open for ideas from everywhere right from before common era okay but what we call the indian genius of the indian character had formulated itself several centuries before the christian era and nothing that happened to us could change that so we found our own solutions 
to the problems, to the philosophical issues that concerned us, we struggled, we evolved and we found our own solutions. We did not take any solution from outside. That does not mean that we were ever a closed society. We were open to ideas. But you know, in the ancient period, for example, we were attacked by the Persians, the Greeks, the Sakas, the Kushans, the Huns. But did we take any aspect of their culture or civilization? It's no. they who, who, uh, who adopted so and Indianized themselves. We struggled to find our own solutions to the problems. What are the problems that engaged us? The meaning of life. What is the purpose of life? These were, they were, these were, we were not worried about economic well-being because we were such a naturally endowed space that there was never any shortage of anything. We were so abundant in everything. Our concerns were concerns of philosophy, of religion, of spirituality. And in all these fields, we struggled to find our own answers. And we had so many great philosophers, thinkers who debated about these. There was no part of India which did not produce great thinkers. So we searched for the solutions ourselves, found them on our own. We were open to ideas. But we evolved ourselves. That's that's really wonderful, and it is such a different uh, point of view from what what the leftist historians have fed us. You know, they've always told us that there was no India before the British, and as you very rightly said, they're merely echoing the British propaganda because British wanted that image that yes. India was just a fragmented uh, collection of people, and we sort of got them together. Can you tell me any? period in history from any part of India where we did not align ourselves to the great idea of India. There was no part of India. Every, now I just, this is very important that you know every dynasty that ruled, whichever part, it always said we are descendants of the Pandas or we are descendants of Surya Vansha. Yeah. So for example, there is a dynasty in Andhra. They, they said we are Ishkvakus and we are from the family of Ram. Ram. Yeah. There is another dynasty which said we are the descendants of Dronacharya. So no dynasty in India said we, are, we have nothing to do with the great Indian story. Yeah. Every dynasty says we are descendants of a central figure in Indian in fact, this whole thing of we are the descendant of Ram and we want our our, our rule to be as ideal as Ramaraja yes, yes. is a theme that keeps recurring and you will find it in every possible kingdom. Yes. You will find it even in even in Thailand yes. where the kings still call themselves yes. Rama, Rama yes. 1, Rama whatever yeah. and yeah. they, they yeah. name their capital yeah. Ayodhya yeah. which is called Ayodhya right now. So let's come to the second important book or rather two books that you have written since we are talking about Sri Ram. Battle for Ram and the case for Ayodhya. Now, uh, many of us know, thanks to your book and thanks to all the work that you have done, that how the left historians led by Irfan Habib and Romila Thapar have lied, not just to the people of India, but lied in court on oath about all the evidence that has been found. But I would still like you to talk a little bit about it. You know, this whole controversy about Ayodhya, 
there is a lesson for all of us to learn. And what is that lesson? That one dozen determined. They were not even one dozen, I think they were less than that, right? right. Maximum. They were actually less. But one dozen determined scholars or historians absolutely united in their contempt for Indian civilization and heritage through their control of the print and electronic media could block the other side from expressing or presenting its case. And the other side had truth, the other side had all the proofs, the other side had all the case. Now, what the Supreme Court judgment says is something that could have been delivered 30-40 years ago and spared us all this tension and agony. Yes. The judgment was very simple. Give that entire uh, area to the temple party and you construct a mosque elsewhere. There was no great, uh, you know, thought, I mean, it did not require great thinking to come to this solution. But why was it not done is what we have to understand. Here, I want to uh, uh, interject a little bit and ask you, at any point of time, did the Muslim population feel that let us be the bigger people here, this place is very important to the Hindus, let's give it to them. Was there a point of view? According to KK Muhammad, okay. who is an archaeologist, uh, he said that in 1989, when the dispute actually was joined, there was a section of the Muslim community which said that, you know, this place has no importance for us. But it means so much to the Hindus. So let us hand over this site. He said it is at that time that left historians, uh, Romila Thapar, Irfan Habib, etc. They came and said, you have a very strong case. We will present you the evidence. So don't surrender. So this is how scholarship that is out of tune with the heritage of this country, with the values of this country has played such an important role in creating animosity between the two communities. And I just want to, for your viewers, I want to emphasize how the evidence was weighed totally in favor of the Mandir party. See, the Mandir was demolished in 1528. So for the next 300 years, the Masjid party was not able to produce one iota of evidence that they were present over there. For 300 years, they are not able to prove that we were there. So, it is possible that Babar came, smashed, occupied that site and went away because probably there was not enough local Muslim population to sustain that place. So, this kind of, you know, total lack of evidence on the part of the Masjid party is something that even supporters of the temple are not familiar with even today. And this is the lesson that how you can sabotage because of your muscle power. Very true. You have mentioned in the book that even in the Persian records, consistently, yes. even Muslims themselves have referred to the place as Janamstan. Absolutely. Now, can you imagine the first time we hear of a Muslim voice from Ayodhya? First time after 1528 is in 1858. That is how many years? 300 years? Yeah. And this is the superintendent of Babri Masjid. 
he is writing to the British judiciary saying that you know uh, people have entered Babri Masjid. That these are the Nihang Sikhs. Yeah, okay. they have entered. And what does he, he does not use the word Babri Masjid. He says they have entered Masjid e Janam Sthan. Masjid e Janam Sthan. So, okay. is there any Masjid in the whole world which is called which Masjid e Janam Sthan? Which means it was an acknowledgement on their part that it was the Janam Sthan Masjid. I mean, what can be more telling than this? What I am just saying is that the evidence in favor of the temple was so voluminous that it is a very sad state that people could block the settlement for so long. So I don't understand one thing, why do we call Irfan Habib a left historian? He's an Islamist for all practical purposes. That's exactly what he has done. But uh, you're not, I don't know whether you're aware of his greatest deceitful act. Mm -hmm. In 1992, when the masjid was demolished, an inscription fell from that masjid, from the walls of that masjid. It was five feet by two feet. Okay. That means it's a big inscription. Yeah. And that inscription was in perfect condition okay. because it was embedded in the wall between two walls. Mm -hmm. And it gave the history of the temple, who built it, when it was built, who was the temple for, the person who destroyed the Dasaptar, etc. All that is given. Now, this was clinching proof that it was a temple site. And Irfan Habib, I have to mention this because this role is so, you know, painful. He said that this inscription was planted there in 1992. Now, we are all aware that the whole media of the world was there in 1992. So, the inscription was not some book that you put in your pocket and just go and plant it there when the car sevaks are there. And it's a five feet inscription, five feet you know, feet. you can't just lift it and put yeah. it there. Yeah. yeah. And as if the media will not capture the yeah. photographs, etc. And it's a heavy inscription. So he says that it was a plant. Okay. How was it planted? He doesn't explain. Where did this inscription come from? So he said it was in some private collection. Okay. So we said, can we have the name of that private collector? You cannot keep a 5 foot by 2 foot inscription in the basement of your house. And why would you keep it? Yeah. You would show it. Then he said that it was actually stolen from Lucknow Museum. Okay. Some years ago, Lucknow Museum has published the photograph of that inscription, which is in their, in their custody, custody okay. even now. It's not stolen. Okay. And that inscription is so badly damaged, you cannot read anything in it. Okay. So, you cannot say that it is from the Babri Masjid. Whereas the inscription that is from the walls gives the history of that temple. So, and he has not apologized and we have not asked for an apology. Hmm. But this is the, it should indicate to you the extent to which a section of historians went to deny the Hindus their due. True, very true. Can we name, I know Romila Thapar and Irfan Habib are the... Are, are D.N. Jha and R.S. Sharma. Okay. And uh, Mandal and uh, Mandal and uh, there's one more person, I'll just uh, recall his. Not one of them had the intellectual integrity to say that we were wrong and we lied. No, none of them. And the interesting thing is that their strategy was very carefully planned. They said that we ourselves will not go to court and we will send our students. Our students means not 18 years, 20 year old, 
our students who have become professors also. Okay. So, the people they sent concurred with their deceit hmm. and they lied in court okay. and the court passed strictures. The court in some cases said you were sent to assist us but you are trying to mislead us. Hmm. So, the court was as strict as it could be, as harsh as it could be and when they tried to perpetuate the same mischief in the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court said these are your opinions not facts. So, the courts have snubbed them but the point is that publicly they have not apologized, they have not said we were wrong, they are, there is no public, public accountability, accountability or, or admission. I have to say, uh, Meenakshi ji, that this book, I have the book here, Rama and Ayodhya, it's a monumental service that you have done to Dharma, to India and towards the truth. Thank you have read 5,000 pages of the judgment. Of one person's judgment, Un Justice Sudhir Agarwal. Unbelievable, unbelievable. That is, when, that is when I realized how strong the Hindu case is. Because Sudhir Agarwal, Justice Sudhir Agarwal, he put all the evidence there. And that is when I decided that it has to be investigated, I have to study it. So, Justice Agarwal's judgment was what goaded me to study the matter further. And you know, what is uh, the lesson that I have learned? It is that intellectuals at some stage have got divorced and separated from their heritage and they have become rootless. And that explains why they have acted the way they have. Till this controversy or let me say till the time of independence, there was no break hmm. in our connection with our, with our heritage. Yes. It was universal, everyone knew but somehow the way we have written and taught history after independence is when there has been a big rupture and so, this is something you should yeah, so uh, has it been uh, from 1947 since the times of Nehru or as uh, Sri S.L. Bhairappa told me that this was during Indira Gandhi's yes. time he's when right. CPI uh, yes. supported? Absolutely, he is right. Okay. Uh, in the time of Nehru, uh, I don't think much attention was given to this mm -hmm. because what we call nationalist historians, they were still very dominant on the, the national scene. historians like R.C. Majumdar, yes. Yadunan. They were really, okay. you know commanding heights of okay. the Indian historians, these were the people. Okay. Now what happened was that when the Congress government under Indira Gandhi became a minority government, she needed some support to stay in power. Okay. And that is when the CPI said, we will support you, but we only want one ministry and that is the education I ministry. And from then, the assault, let me put it like this, the assault on Indian culture, Indian civilization began in a very systematic way. And that assault unfortunately continues till today. I understand that and that is why I don't understand that the communists could understand the importance, the only ministry they asked for was not home, not finance, not defense, not industry. Yes. They asked for MHRD because they knew that 
to make the new generation divorced from their past yes. what they need to control is education yes. and i don't understand how in the past 5 years we have not been able to accept and grapple with this issue and do something about it but that's besides the point we'll talk about that later uh let me move on to your next book which is uh, again another monumental work about sati and that is something again you know in school since like my generation the generation before me we've all learnt it that sati was very prevalent in india every woman practically committed sati and william bentick the the benevolent uh, enlightened british lord governor he came and then he banned uh, it's sati the it's still there it's i know yes. it's still there yeah. so that is the narrative that we have all for generations have studied but your book actually uh, talks about this in detail and it points out something that should have been very obvious to us that why is this all coming from bengal which didn't really have the tradition yes, of sati exactly. it should have come from rajasthan, rajasthan. to some extent to Ma- in maharashtra but why why bengal absolutely why bengal this is the the answer lies in this the british first entered india through bengal and bengal was the first area that they controlled and they were very clear that they are a trading company they have come here to make money they have not come here to reform hindu society and in fact the early englishmen they were full of admiration for hindu society and hindu civilization in fact it was said about william bentick that if you wanted to look for sorry if you wanted to find warren hastings the first governor general over the weekend you would not find him because he would have gone pandit hunting to banaras <laughs> the early englishmen they were in awe of the civili- the hindu civilization. civilization and they tried to understand it to learn it they learned the languages they translated texts it was the situation of a teacher and the disciples that was the reverence that they had for so they the the east india company essentially just wanted to make money yes. they, they they were not interested in now, converting not at all not at all in fact they were admirers of indian culture hindu culture particularly okay. and they tried to promote it and learn it whichever way they could okay now what happened was that the evangelical movement was born in england hmm. now that evangelical movement said that we have to not only proselytize among our own people and make them better christians but christianize the, the world yeah. and they said india is a place where we are in power so we must go there okay the east india company had a rule that no missionary would be allowed in their territory this is interesting and if you boarded a ship from england to india and you said on the ship that you are a missionary you were offloaded there and then okay so if you came by stealth hmm. then you were sent back okay now in bengal there was a small danish colony shirampur or sirampur hmm. so that place allowed anyone to come okay now the missionaries said in parliament that india is a land of evil and we have to go there and spread christianity parliament rejected their case and they said no you are not needed over there but finally they said we have to build a case 
so they came quietly to calcutta and immediately went to shirampur and can you imagine these missionaries when they come here they commission a private survey of how many satis are taking place in calcutta and around calcutta because they were in bengal and as you said the center of sati and johar was always rajasthan never bengal so they commissioned a private survey and then after that they started writing letters home reports home exaggerating in every report they would increase the number of people who were emulating okay and that is why under their pressure parliament finally allowed the missionaries the right to operate in india but you will be surprised to know that even after parliament passed this law several senior british officials who were governors of bombay and madras presidency for example they said this is exaggeration there are hardly a few dozen satis that happened in the last 20 30 years and this is all missionary propaganda okay and their one own people said their that. own people and uh, in fact and i also want to quote over here abed boy he was a french jesuit okay. and he said in the last 30 years i don't think i have been able to make two conversions okay and he said that these british baptist missionaries they are spreading falsehood and he wrote a series of letters home which are available letters on the state of christianity in india okay and he has debunked this whole missionary effort and he said it's all lies and this is what i have exposed in my book and just to conclude this point if you start looking for the actual instances of sati hmm. not just hearsay the first instance is when in the time of alexander when he is going back home you know then he has an indian contingent the general dies the indian general dies and then the shocked greek soldiers see that two of his widows are fighting among themselves who will emulate and after that the next recorded instance is in iran madhya pradesh in 500 ad so that means there's an interval of 800 years for the eyewitness account of yes okay. which means that i'm not denying that sati was a custom but, but it was a very rare and because a woman who committed sati required superhuman courage hindu society revered the extraordinary character of that woman that is true yeah you know and it's wrong and misleading to say that every woman was concerned in fact the religious texts for a long period up till the 18th century say it is not to be done they compare it to black magic okay The, see that's another stick that uh, yes. the 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 so called uh, left narrative uses it to beat hindu saying that yeah. oh your religion is so primitive you burnt yes. women you know yes. they, that that kind of gross generalization and one thing when you are talking about sati what about the number of women who were being burnt as witches in europe at that time yeah that nobody talk talks about that, about that. no and one more thing uh, one scholar has made a very pertinent observation that during this period millions and millions were dying of famine in british india hmm. how come this was never debated by the missionaries or any british official in india true the death of millions of people by british policies which uh, led to famine in calcutta for example 
Yeah, I've seen pictures of that. So that is never discussed by the missionaries True. or by William Bentick or the great reformers who came from England. They never discussed. Very, very true. Before we move into your latest work, which is the flight of deities, I want to understand that you have stuck your neck out for a cause that is considered unfashionable for historians, yes. right? You have consistently been talking about what you believe is right and what is the truth. And I know that you have personally paid a huge price for it, how you've been ostracized literally and how you've been vilified and you've had a lot of difficulties even finding publishers. I want you to talk a little about how that isolation, that, 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 uh, that uh, how would I say, that untouchability that exists in this field. Uh, see, uh, the personal price that I had to pay really doesn't bother me because I was not doing Hindu society a favor or anyone a favor. It was my own desire to understand and find the truth that first led me to these topics. It was to educate myself first. And then from that education, I realized there's a different story and I thought I should put it on record. What was really painful and hurtful and really shocking was the absolute difficulty in finding a publisher. And you know, for this book, Ram and Ayodhya, this was the first uh, major work on this subject. And when I finished, I put in so much effort. And when I finished, like a very naive and foolish person, I thought I had written a bestseller. Okay. And I thought, you know, publishers... It should be. If there is any justice in the world, it should be a yeah. bestseller. So the thing I thought, you know, now people, publishers will line up at my doorstep. Okay. And <laughs> my experience was just the opposite. I first gave it to a leading publisher who supposedly is sympathetic to okay. uh, the Hindu point of view. Okay. And I never got a response from that publisher for four months. And I was just wondering, uh, you know, what to do. And I just rang up the secretary and I said that, can I have a feedback? She says, we'll get in touch with you shortly. Hmm. And this is something that I can never forget. I was taking a class and my mobile was on my desk and suddenly I saw a message flash that we regret we cannot use your manuscript and it is being returned to you. Okay. I mean this was something that was something that was totally unexpected. Here I was thinking that you know and I can never forget the difficulty I had in finishing that lecture that day and then I rushed out of my class when the talk was over and just did not know how to compose myself. Okay. Because you know, if a publisher who is supposed to be sympathetic and let me say at least not publishing rabid anti-Hindu anti or anti-India stuff, so yeah. if this person is going to reject it, what is the next step? And if every publisher is going to take four to six months to give the rejection slip, then you know so much time will have passed. Whereas, according to me, the need of the book, our was that the book should be out. Yeah. So, I mean, it was, this was a very painful part of it. And I have to say that it, my books were published, especially this Ram and Ayodhya, because the archaeologists, this, I went to them, I said, you know, now what do I do? Because I don't know what to do. Then they said, no, we will ensure that the book is published. And you will notice that there are very few leftists among archaeologists. True. Because 
there is no scope for yeah, deceit over there. Yeah, and they deal with evidence. Yes, so that was the thing. The personal isolation uh, did not bother me at all. Because I had seen, when I was a small person, I had seen my father being ostracized and he was such a high profile person. So that was something that I had seen firsthand and you know him going through that phase which was very uncharacteristic because he was used to occupying the center stage wherever he went. Yes. And the way he was isolated in the profession, you know, among circles, that was very painful. I did not consider myself in that league. I was not in that league. And what bothered me was the rejection from the publisher. How important, uh, we'll, we'll talk about Girilalji a little bit. How important an influence was he in, in your life? Uh, he, he's, he's done a tremendous amount of work. Yeah. And as you said, he has also personally dealt with a lot of, you know, the same people who defied him before. Yeah, exactly. Suddenly, just because he had realized and yes. he had, and it, it was a realization that had happened after a yes. considerable period of time, right? It's the same people who had turned against him. Yeah, because according to him, the temple movement was not against anyone. Hmm. It was a movement for the revitalization of Hindu culture and civilization and to bring it back to the center stage of Indian polity. So, uh, and you know, uh, I, I mean, he's been a very, very formidable influence in my life because I saw every inch of the struggle. He was a self-made person. He never had any mm -hmm. patron, though he, uh, you know, uh, people were influenced by him, impressed by him, but every inch of that struggle was a personal struggle and he never took any shortcuts. So it was always a long and lonely road. Uh, of course, before the Ram Mandir, it was not a lonely road because he attracted people from yeah. such wide sections of society who even disagreed with him, but they were attracted by the sheer intellect. So he was never isolated until Ramji came along. You have also walked on that long and lonely path for quite some years now. But the kind of work that you produced and slowly I am very happy to see that uh, things are changing. Yes. Because the, the people who asked me, the, who sent me the questions and I will take some of the questions yes. in a while. They are all young people. They are yes. all in the late 20s. They are all in the early 30s. They are in the early 20s and they have read your books. You and know. they want to know more about. But you know in this case hmm. of the growing popularity of the Ram movement and all, I think a large part of the credit goes to social media. Hmm. Because people like you and others, they have been successful in giving legitimacy to an idea which has no space even today in the formal wow. academic, true. academic sphere. True, academic as well as media sphere. And the, and the social media, it allows you to cut across the hierarchy. Yes. of established historians, institutions. And you are free to do your own survey of your own area, your own community and present what is the you know, memory of that, the remembered memory of your past. So this is being documented by people who are not professional historians, but they are doing a very, very great service to the larger Hindu cause. That, that is that is very very true. Now we come back to uh, your latest book, which is the Flight of Deities, which 
again basically deals with two important lies and canards that the so called left historian i will call them distortions have been propagating primarily led by romila thapar that a uh, the muslims did not demolish hindu temples or at least if they did they were just one or two stray incidents here and there but in general it was not a widespread practice one so second lie that they have been telling us that those who did like uh, mahmud of ghazni and he destroyed somnath they didn't do it because of the islamic uh, dogma and iconoclasm or destroying vigrahas and murtis was considered to be their religious duty but they did it because they wanted money and these temples were rich temples so there was only purely secular economic causes for the destruction they didn't mean any harm they didn't mean to hurt hindu people that is that is the that is the narrative which is largely led by romila thapar but this book actually tells in detail about how the temples were broken and how the hindus fought the other lie that has been fed is this is actually ironical because on one hand they say that okay not many temples have been destroyed and even if they were destroyed it was not out of a desire to hurt hindus on the other hand they say but there was no hindu resistance at all yes you know they, they just the the islamic invaders just came and the hindus just gave them a red carpet and that's it that's the end of it but, and but your book debunks it with proof so could you talk a little bit about that yes. uh first of all the resistance to the arab and turkish invasions has been documented by a large number of people who led that resistance and i would like to begin by quoting two inscriptions the first is a kabi plate inscription 736 okay and 736 c ah, and 3 uh, years later the navsari copper plate inscription of 739 both these inscriptions are by people who led that struggle and they regarded their struggle so important that they actually had it recorded and uh, around the same time there's a fragment of an inscription that has been found at atak which also talks about a local ruler how he has stopped an arab invasion the point is that we do not come across such detailed documentation of resistance of any other invader before this hmm. so there was something about these invasions which begin the medieval period which left a deep impress on the mind of the people it of this country pain, yes now uh, and the second part of the story is that the temples by the time the invasions began had become huge structures hmm. they were not small little things so these gigantic structures it was very uh, difficult or impossible to protect them when your house is attacked and you have to run you run with what is most precious, precious to you that is true so supposing my house is attacked i will try to run away with gold mm-hmm. something that is small and that i can it very valuable for me so in the medieval period and you said the extent of devastation in the entire north india there is no temple that is there before the 18th century so that is the extent of the devastation they all the temples that you see today are post 18th century the whole of sacred cities like banaras 
they are rebuilt by the Marathas in the 18th century. The contribution of the Marathas to the re-sacralization of our sacred spaces is something we should remember and acknowledge with gratitude. Absolutely. So, now the thing is, so what did the Hindus do? It is a story which I have not found in any other country in the world. We were not the only civilization that was attacked. Others were also attacked. The first attack takes place in Multan, which is the sun temple. And that is attacked. And the people who were worshipping in these temples had not experienced this thing before. Na? So they were totally unprepared. Yeah. But what they did was that at that moment of the invader is at your door and you don't have weapons, you don't have this thing. So you run away with the murti. In many cases, they saved the murti. In many cases, they could not save the murti or the temple. So for example, in the sun temple in Multan, the image of the sun was made of gold. Okay. So that did not survive. But the commitment of the people, they produced a wooden image. Can you imagine? Because they were not willing to give up worship. So they produced a wooden image. And when there was another attack, they would run away with the image. When the attack was over, they would come back. So this kind of story we find all over India. And what is really heartening is that the temple is attacked, it's destroyed. Soon after that, they build a smaller temple because they don't have money, they don't have political power. Yeah. They don't give up the name of that temple. So they build another temple which keeps the same name. That is destroyed. Then they build a third temple also the same name. Now Kashi Vishwanath. The temple was first destroyed in the time of Kutubuddin Evak. Now that shivling, that ling, the devotees ran away with that link. And if you go and that site, they built Razia Mosque. So near, near Razia Mosque, you will see a small little temple. It doesn't look like a temple because if you look like a temple, it will be attacked again. So that link which was there in the original Kashi temple is kept in that small structure which is nearby. And I want to complete the story of this particular site because it's so important. The temple was again destroyed, built, redistributed. Now, in the 16th century, there was a very towering Hindu intellect, Narayan Bhatt. And he writes a work, Tri Sthali Setu. Okay. And what does he say in that work? He tells the devotees that if you come to this place and you find the shivling not there, don't be disheartened. You put grass Usa grass okay. and you do your parikrama and everything pretending that the ling is there. Okay. So this is that we will not give up that worship. Even the image is not there, we will continue coming. He says it's your dharma to keep the dharma of that place alive. That stala is important, that salamatma, we are not going to give up on our sacred space. Then Hiliabai uh, uh, built that Yes, the present. No, so let me say, after that, Narayan Bhatt got the temple built. Mm -hmm. He built it a little later. And he tells the devotees that now you will find a new ling. So, he, Narayan Bhatt, helps in the reconstruction of the Vishwanath temple. Alright, and then he writes, 
that now you will find a new link there. But please show it as much reverence as you did for the old link. Now it is very interesting that this particular temple was destroyed by Aurangzeb. Yes. And when Aurangzeb destroys it, the priest of that temple, he picks up the link. And jumps into the No, and he takes it to his hut which is behind the temple. And he continues worshipping it and his family continues worshipping it. When Ahilyabai builds the Kashi Vishwanath temple, that is the link that is reinstated. But Kashi Vishwanath temple does not have the link at the center of the temple. Yeah, it's on one side. That is where the priest had kept it in his hut. Okay. Okay. Meenakshi ji, there's another lie that we have been fed often, which is uh, basically saying that, Haan, so what Islamic invaders destroyed temples and murtis? Wo to Hindu rulers bhi karte the ek ka. So what is so different? You know, they are only following in the traditions. Hindu rulers have also destroyed temples. They have also destroyed Buddhist images or whatever. That's the narrative that they have been trying to tell us. So is this true? It is process? absolute big fat lie. And all the evidence that we have of Hindu kings, barring one or two in the entire thousands of years of our history, it shows how Hindu kings revered the images that were under worship in rival kingdoms. And I just want to give the first instance that we have. It's of the second century before Christ, that is before common era. And that is recorded in an inscription that is the Hathi Gumpha inscription. That is Kharavela. Yeah. So the Nanda king attacks and takes away an image of a Jain Tirthankar. From Kalinga. From Kalinga. And this king Kharavel, he goes to that palace of the Nanda king, invades that palace and brings back that image. Mm. And he records because he finds it such a great thing that he has done that he has it recorded. So all the evidence that we have, they were kings who attacked and brought back images but like Krishna Devaraya, hmm. he attacked Orissa and he brought back a Krishna image and he had it instated in a grand Krishna temple in his hmm. capital city of Hampi. Hmm. So there is at the most one or two people in the entire history who can be accused of desecrating an image. And in their cases also, we have to examine the story behind it and we will find the reality is different. Now this myth that certain historians have created that Hindu kings destroyed, it is to be totally rejected. I have discussed those instances in my book and everywhere I have shown how the Hindu kings revered the images. And in fact, there is a text that was written in the medieval period mm -hmm. and it says that when a king What is the text called? Purva Karma something, I don't remember but Agam, Agam. Purva Karma Agam Yes, which was give, told to me by Professor Nagaswami He okay. gave me the text okay. and that says that when a king is going to declare war in another king he has to make sure that the women, the aged, the cattle, everyone is protected okay. and he says it is his duty to bring back the image to his kingdom so there is no disruption in the worship hmm. and it is the duty of the defeated king to try to bring back that image within three years to his own kingdom 
and the images that were more mainly taken away were Durga images because Durga was the deity of uh, you know she was going to give protection yes. to the king so that was and the other thing that is not really discussed in these narratives is how Hindus recorded hmm. what they experienced of iconoclasm that is a totally neglected area of study and you will be surprised to know the first account that we have is of a person who was a minister in the court of an Indian ruler. He was an eyewitness to Mahmud Ghaznavi's attack on Somnath. Is, is, that is Dhanpal. Ha. And he recorded that in a book okay. which is still available. And all these accounts, they have one interesting thing in common. They all say that the power of the sword was not enough to defeat our deity. Our deity remained as powerful as before and continued to be worshipped with as much reverence as before. This is the narrative, this is the evidence which people should bring forward and create a new narrative. So tell me something, this was a contemporary account yes. of uh, Mahmud of Ghaznavi's uh, destruction yes. of the Somnath temple yes. and yet the revered venerable Romila Thapar in her book on Somnath, she didn't make any mention of it. And I want to tell you one more thing in connection with Somnath which is very interesting. In Somnath, after the temple had been destroyed twice or thrice, an Arab trader comes and he wants to build a masjid over there. Hmm. And the people of Somnath help him to acquire land and to build that masjid. Nuruddin Firuz is his name. Okay. And that masjid, he had an inscription placed in the masjid, which said that I am, you know, the one who has got this masjid built. And very interesting, he says that from whatever money is left, from the endowment that I am giving to the masjid, it should be sent for the welfare of people in Mecca and Medina. Okay. And DC Sarkar, the very eminent epigraphist who translated that inscription, he adds a comment that it did not occur to him to give that money to the welfare of the people in this land who had, had given him the... Yeah. And he is thinking of sending that money for the welfare of people in Mecca and Medina. So I am amazed that a historian who claims herself to be a historian wouldn't mention a contemporary account, first person account of the invasion at all in her book and writes nice fiction about how Mahmoud of Ghaznavi was a really nice guy who just wanted some money. I mean, it's mind boggling what Romila Thapar has done. She is sticking to the uh, school of history writing to which she belongs. <laughs> It's not history writing. She's, she's, and she's can I just uh, uh, can I just say one thing more yeah. about Somnath? Yeah. You know how the fear of iconoclasm was so deeply ingrained in the Hindu mind that in the 18th century, when Ahilya Bai Holkar hmm. rebuilds that Somnath temple, that is when Mughal power was in decline. Even in that Somnath temple, she keeps the shivling in the basement. <laughs> Because she is still afraid that, you know, anyone can, can come, come and enter. So, these are truths that we should also examine. These are deep psychological truths that why in the 18th century are you 
putting the shivling in a basement that is true and that is that is uh, you you see that in the temple of madurai also there are two shivlings yes. one was built as a decoy yes. and the real one was hidden behind the a wall the decoy still has the marks of the the attack. yes yes and uh, and it's not uh, it's not just islamic invaders either i come from a land called goa yes. which was ravaged by christian missionaries Absolutely. and the exact same thing happened yes. they destroyed the temples yes. but the people as you said they saved the thing that was most precious to them that was the deity and they just lifted the deity and they transferred it to the ponda mahal where today's all of goa's temples are located within 5 kilometers of each other because of the yes. because of the same reason anyway that's a whole different topic and that's a whole different story uh so i think now we have uh, talked about your books i had asked for questions from readers and i think i'll take some of the questions because uh, some of them are very very interesting and they give a different uh, perspective so here is a question from rajat maghu he says what is the role of us readers in correcting the wrong history which has been fed to us how can we be of help i think and this is my firm belief that wherever you are in whichever region of india it is important for you to rediscover the history of that region because you know it's not possible for a historian to go to every region True. but a person who's from that region will have access to the language to the sources to the local history to the local memories which deserve to be recorded mm-hmm. i always say that people who are not professional historians can bypass the established historians who are unsympathetic to the correct narrative by preparing your own videos oral history and put it on the net because this net is the great equalizer true very very true next question is from a person called bharat vakte he says why hinduism and indian culture still exists after 1000 years of mughal and british raj that's his first question and his second question is what should be our contribution to our society to save our culture see why the second part i think i've already answered that people can yeah. in their own area why it survived because first of all it was not a centralized social system or a centralized religious structures or spirituality it had percolated to the lowest level so if i am sitting in a village and my capital of my area has been devastated that does not prevent me from continuing my local practices so the decentralized nature of hinduism was the reason when each individual could individually keep up the link with the past and i just want to say in this connection when we talked about iconoclasm it was so widespread in the medieval period so what was one response one response was the staging of ram leelas okay the staging of ram leelas means that you don't need an image hmm. because a human being serves as the image hmm. true so you can't uh, yeah. so i uh, if i'm participating the ram leela i become sita yeah if there's an attack i again become minakshi so yeah. this kind of real genius that you think of this innovative response and the other point is that the ram leela is not inside the temple it's always in the public space so actually you are trying to reclaim the public space also true and who was the person who revived the tradition of ram leela it's supposed to be tulsidas hmm. 
can you suggest a book that is a good start for normal people for ordinary people to know about the glorious past this is from somebody called raju i think what is the uh, current best seller is sanjeev sanyal okay because he has written books which are accessible to everybody okay. and he has touched on the key points of our past uh this is a question i think i will answer it says how many such babri masjids are there in india built on top of temples i would ask this is by bujji i would request him to read sitaram goel's book on what indian temples and what happened to them that gives a entire list of this uh what message you want to give to thousands of other people in india who are feeling sad and uh, who are who who are really upset about this this narrative and how they could change it i think it's pr- yes. probably a continuation See, of the uh, same the thing. thing is that think of those who witnessed all this hmm. they did not allow their sadness to hamper a response they remained steadfast to their heritage and in today's time when we have so many avenues available to us we should overcome this sadness and think of creatively interacting and dealing with our glorious heritage and coming up with innovative responses to preserve and to further it this question is from bharat dilan what change do you think padma shri has brought in your life no it has brought no change at all and i uh, don't expect it will bring any change but it's gives a sense of gratitude that all these decades of work have been noticed by someone somewhere so it's a a sense of gratitude and relief but it does not change the tenor of my life i'm working as hard and i hope my new book will be out soon what is the topic of your new book actually it's a history of the hindus okay and uh, it's uh, it has not been written in the way that i'm presenting it mm. and i've discussed many contentious issues in that for example the entry of outsiders Hmm. how did the outsiders respond to indian heritage okay. so various things which make it very interesting this next question actually a lot of people have asked the same question in different words but i think you should answer this what can the government do to keep political interference out of influencing our school textbooks and what are they doing to correct the narrative which has been biased for now pretty much so many decades see uh, this is a very sad part of it that uh, the education system the way history is taught it remains the way the left historians decided it decades ago there has been no change at all the books that were written by romila thapar etc they continued for 20 30 years right. and this set of books written by the new generation of left historians has been in schools for the last 16 years so it's really and you know the distortions that continue hmm. the devaluation for example of the glorious vijayanagar empire krishna devaraya all these people are missing in the seventh standard textbook that's right how can we inculcate pride in our culture when we don't talk about no, these when things we don't even know yeah it's very sad children all over india know the genealogy of the moguls ki yes. akbar ka beta kaun tha uska yes. beta kaun tha 
everyone knows but you ask in a room of 100 people uh, who was the greatest chalukya emperor of vatapi there'll be one person who'll be able to give you yes. the answer yeah. and the chalukyas are one family by the way hmm. uh, they in their charters they said you know we ruled in ayodhya 50 of our ancestors ruled in ayodhya yeah. then we came down so that thing that always linking with the grand narrative of india yeah again this is the same question shashank kedia why hasn't this government made necessary changes in school upsc state syllabus to include her and other historians who wrote correct history their books million dollar question <laughs> to which there is no reply yeah i think that's about it with the most repeated question actually was So, okay we know all this what is the government going to do about it and when are the textbooks going to be corrected as far as i know uh-huh. even the first step hasn't been taken in that direction that is that that is very very sad and especially when as we know that when the cpi had their first step yes. first door first foot in the door yes. the first and only thing they asked for is the hrd ministry so that they could do this but i i'm really hoping that some day your book will be a prescribed textbook for ma history and uh, a generation of uh, i don't uh, see that happening for a long time to come what <laughs> lives and hope in akshidi thank you so much thank you so much i've really enjoyed it Same and uh, thank you so much for taking time out and having me on your program and wishing you all the best for your next book and i'm very keen to see how india viewed herself because that's what i got yes. is the rough idea behind this new book so in a way it's a logical culmination of yes. how they saw india and how we saw india well thank you so thank much you so all much. the best and thank hope to so see much. it soon thank, thank you. you namaste